0: Wbz
1: original. Uh, you know how how long it's <laughs> been <laughs> since I've been able to just unload <laughs> dark- oh my thoughts. God. You should hear him during *The
2: Bachelorette*. <laughs> Summer, everybody. It is a summer episode of Alston's number one podcast, Studio BZ, a summer special, if you will. Uh, how long have
1: we been off now? It's two, been a good two months, two months quick... and I've
2: been going through withdrawal
1: from well, seeing you both. I spent those two months. I don't know what you guys spent them doing. I had uh, extreme. Facial reconstructive surgery. Uh, just had to do big some big improvements. Some, the way. Nip, some nips and tucks here and there. I noticed some crow's feet.
2: Um, and,
1: you don't uh, look a day yeah. over fifty, Thanks. Liam.
2: That is that is Liam Martin talking. By the way, I'm Paula Evan and John
0: Keller. Hello. Hello. You said happy summer. What's a damn happy about? Happy summer. About it, it's been a oh, really that was a, you know that was what a greeting, yeah.
2: after the rainy May. Yeah. It's been a really beautiful summer. It's been an awesome. You summer. have to admit. Yeah. Too
0: hot for us older folks.
2: Two heat waves, which is yeah. not. Great for everybody. Well, it's going to be the hottest Five. July
1: on record yes. ever in Boston. We are since setting the record something or other.
2: Does anyway. that make you feel good? What? That we beat those people from eighteen seventy two. Well, there's my, something about that I find satisfying. Well, here's
1: my thing. Back when we had in twenty fifteen the hundred inches of snow and it broke the record. Yeah. I want, if you get if you give me a hundred inches of snow, but now I'm one inch shy of the record. Right. Give me the other two inches of snow I, want, I want that so that I break record. the record.
2: It's true. If it shows, I had to
0: already deal with it, I we're
1: might as well very competitive
2: be a deep down, I guess. Oh, absolutely.
0: This is an argument I don't want to have. <laughs> so let's move John
2: on. John could care less. Hey, what are we uh, talking about this week?
0: Well, uh, I had a chance to sit down recently in the middle of this hot summer. With Glenn Johnson, a name that may be familiar to local political junkies, longtime reporter for the Lowell Sun, the Associated Press and the Boston Globe, um, who all of a sudden left a flourishing career as a journalist to take a job as uh, basically director of communications for then Secretary of State John Kerry. Mm -hmm. For the next several years, uh, Johnson had uh, a front row seat traveling the world with Kerry as he negotiated the Iran uh, nuclear deal, uh, Middle East negotiations, you name it. He was right there. And he's recounted his experiences in a new book, Window Seat on the World, that may surprise you with what it has to say about both Kerry and the current Trump foreign policy. So that's coming up.
2: Interesting. We always have such heavy hitters among our local Mm. journalists and writers, don't we? It's great. Oh, cousin company.
0: You know, including, including you, group, John right?
2: Keller, author of The Blue Estate, I, which is in, near bookstore near you. Obviously,
0: <laughs> we're a little rusty because <laughs> I had to prod you there, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: I also have an interview with the new Boston Public School Superintendent, Dr. Brenda Caselius, who's coming to Boston from Minnesota, of course, after a tumultuous tenure by former Superintendent Tommy Chang, uh, who came and left, uh, had some controversies go on while he was superintendent. Uh, Dr. Caselius comes from Minnesota with a very interesting track record where she was commissioner uh, statewide, commissioner of education. And uh, we talk about her goals, what she'd like to do, what she plans to do. And she has a very interesting proposal right off the bat about where she's going to live. So you'll, you'll really enjoy the interview with her.
1: And then Boston's first marijuana shop is going to open, set to open in October in Dorchester on Blue Hill Avenue. It's going to be called Pure Oasis. We had the co-owner, Kobe Evans, onto our show talking about the obstacles to opening in a city like Boston. And why after 70 licenses being doled out by the Cannabis Control Commission, only one has gone to a person of color. And this was part of the goal of the 2016 legislation was that people of color in communities that had been most affected by the criminalization of marijuana would benefit the most from the legalization. And that has not been the case. We asked him why. And then we're also going to be talking about this thing that I saw at uh, Star Market the other
2: day. Yes, mid July. Talker of the yeah. podcast. Mid July.
1: Halloween candy everywhere.
2: Halloween candy.
1: And I will.
2: In July. Does it bother you? Tell it? you what why I would
0: you buy this. it now? I
2: mean, Precisely. those Kit
0: Kats are going to be fused into one giant chocolate <laughs> hairball by the time uh, the weather gets cooler and at a, this rate.
2: Are we talking about Liam's feet again? No. Uh, no? That's what it says. We're going to skip over. It just says looking at the bullet point it, number four, Liam's, Liam's feet. feet. Mm. Mm. Well, okay.
0: That's mm. an appetite
1: suppressant. <laughs> <depressing. laughs> really. Ew. <laughs> There's a whole explainer about why that's listed there that way, uh, though I did not put it there. Well, because you have a foot
0: obsession. You, well, you are I would say,
2: a I, I don't know if
0: it's, a, if it's an obsession as much as it is. <laughs> People can't see when you're behind the anchor desk what's going on with those feet.
2: <laughs> no, 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 it, it no, is his feet. He's very flying his toes in neon a, he, letters that he, spell I, I, out, eat at
0: Joe's. <laughs> Many times over the years, as he and I covered events involving then-Senator John Kerry, Kerry would be droning on or saying something patently ridiculous, and I would catch the eye of Glenn Johnson, the veteran reporter for the Globe, Associated Press, and so forth, and we would just roll our eyes. There he goes again. Well, it just goes to show how times change. Fast forward a few years, John Kerry becomes Secretary of State, and all of a sudden, Johnson up and leaves the Globe to travel the world as a key communications aid to John
2: Kerry. Funny how that happens. Yeah,
0: very interesting decision by Glenn. That ride is over. He's back in the Boston area, and he's written a book about his experiences called Window Seat on the World, My Travels with the Secretary of State. And we sat down recently to talk a little bit about what he saw and what he's seeing now that a whole new team in the White House is managing our foreign policy.
3: (laughs) Boston
4: Entering Jewel City
0: of the World. So, Glenn, there you are, more than three decades as a reporter, a pretty hard-nosed reporter, too. And all of a sudden, one of the major political figures that you've covered as a a senator, as a candidate, as a presidential Mm -hmm. nominee, is on the phone calling you to offer you a job. What went through your mind?
4: I was surprised, and then as he spoke, I was flattered, and then after we hung up, I was sort of fascinated by the prospect that he had raised. Uh, I was in the Globe newsroom. The phone rang early one morning, and he said, I'm about to be confirmed as Secretary of State, and we're trying to build a team, and we're looking for some fresh faces, and I'm looking for somebody that will travel with me, be in the room when I make big decisions, help me with my media outreach, but also keep me in touch with the folks back home. And I wasn't looking for a job, but the opportunity came at this just perfect point in my life. I had just turned 50, had my 25th anniversary. My second son was coming out of college in his last semester. And so just everything sort of seemed to be right. And then as I thought about what he was saying, this was a chance to work not just for a cabinet officer, but the first cabinet officer. Uh, This was someone fourth in line to the presidency. Uh, and it involved going to places around the world that I'd only dreamed about. And so I went home and talked to my family about it that night and there was unanimity in the opinion that this was a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and I felt like I would have been foolish if I had said no. So it was a hard thing to do to leave the only career I'd ever known, but the opportunity was amazing.
0: When you came on, Mm -hmm. what did you find in terms of the state of the art of the Secretary of State's office?
4: Well, when you go into government, first of all, you learn a couple things. Uh, One thing that was a real eye-opener to me was the interagency process. And this was, I think, a a little bit of a revelation for the Secretary, too. When you're a senator, you are a CEO of this little enterprise. You You have your own staff. You can kind of decide how to configure your budget. You pick what issues are important for you. You try and lobby to get on certain committees. When you are a cabinet officer, yes, you run your department. In the secretary's case, I was one of seven people that was grafted on top of a 70,000-person organization. But you still were an appointee, as I was, of the president of the United States. And so if the president said, stand tall, you had to stand tall and salute. You know, you, you had to you had to not only make sure that what you said was in sync and and in uh, largely approved by the white house but also was in conjunction with what the intelligence community the cia and other a- agencies were hearing and also in sync with what the defense department was doing because we were all part of the national security team so that was that was one aspect of it the second aspect was The real challenge in outmoded technology that the government still has, the federal government is this huge aircraft carrier, and getting it to turn in any one direction is very hard. And so Colin Powell, as Secretary of State, really worked to try and get email into the department, et cetera. And and the technology still lags, and there's multiple layers of security on it. And so sometimes it simply doesn't work or it's so inefficient that you see people doing things like resort to using Gmail, which then creates a whole other layer of problem. Well, as we saw with exactly. Secretary Clinton. Yeah, right? I mean, we issue. spent much of our four years still dealing with the residual fallout wow. from that because it, we had to put huge numbers of people on clearing FOIA requests that came in, free information requests that came in, trying to get all of the emails that had been sent through personal email and, and all that. All of that's understandable, but if you also are on the inside, you see why it was a necessity. If you needed to get a message back to the U.S. and you were in Japan and the official channel didn't work, what was your alternative? What did you discover as far as the quality of the
0: uh, American press covering the Secretary of State's office and foreign relations.
4: Pretty impressed. I mean, uh, there is a real dedicated group of correspondents that cover the Secretary of State, and some names you may not know as well as you would know the domestic names that you see every night on cable news or whatever. But, for example, Matt Lee is the AP correspondent, and Matt used to work for the Agence France Presse over in Europe and in Africa. Uh, you have a veteran world traveler uh, like Andrea Mitchell uh, Margaret Brennan, who went from her role at the, at the State Department to now moderator of Face the Nation. Uh, you know, everywhere that we would go, foreign correspondents would come in, whether it was Richard Engel from NBC News or these real esteemed names you'd see from from the New York Times. But the core group that was traveling him, whether it was Matt Lee at AP or Arshad Mohammed at Bloomberg, Indira Lakshmanan, who used to work at The Globe uh, and then was at Bloomberg – you had some real people that that had been around the department through a succession of secretaries, spoke multiple languages, and and really held him to account. And we really tried to accommodate that group. That was one of the jobs that I took very seriously, was coming in as a former journalist, trying to advocate for their presence on our trips and, and to make sure that their needs were addressed. And so we would travel anywhere we went with a group that waxed and waned from 3 to 19 if the story was big enough. That
0: doesn't happen under the current administration. Well, I was just
4: down in Washington, and uh, and I was talking to some of them at a launch party for my book, and they were telling me that there's a hard rule right now that they're only taking six people with them on the plane. That's a three-person network crew: soundman, cameraman, and producer. And it's a it's a still photographer, and then it's a wire reporter, and maybe one print reporter. Gee. And so, what does that mean, though? I just think that I I I wonder what the administration thinks it's getting from that, because having multiple reporters with you spreads your word farther and faster than having fewer. You channel everything and funnel everything through a limited press pool that then has to take the time to write a pool report that is then distributed back to all their colleagues that you can't put on the plane, and then they go ahead and and write the story about whatever you just said. Contrast that, say, with the Russians that have really no interagency process, like I just described, no official clearance process. And you walk out of a meeting, say, with the president of Russia in in Helsinki, they can put out anything they want immediately. The U.S. media has a huge hurdle to clear. And then the—and then the— official uh, cabinet department has its own challenges to get the word out. It so, just doesn't
0: serve discourse. So their spin circles the globe while ours is still putting its pants on. Exactly.
4: Wow.
0: Uh, speaking of the Russians, sure. you mentioned in the book that you uh, and Secretary Kerry uh, observed sort of the early roots
4: of mm. Russian meddling. Mm-hmm. What did you mean? Well, as I was both there and then coming back and sorting through my notes and going back and doing the research to substantiate my observations, you could see the predicate laid for the election interference in 2016. And the steps that went to that were, first of all, you know, President Putin and the longtime Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov had their own disputes with Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State. And she chose a very forward-leaning and present State Department spokesman, Toria Newland, who also irritated them. Now, there was a lot of people accusing them of sexism and misogyny in terms of the way they treated these two people. But Hillary Clinton went in with the clear intent of having a reset with the Russians. She presented them with this fake staples button that said reset on it or so she thought. And Sergey Lavrov immediately embarrassed her and said, it doesn't say that. The translation is off. And he kept bringing that up almost any time that he would see her again and just always sort of putting her down. And so there was these hard feelings Fast forward then to Hillary Clinton comes out. Well, first of all, she talks about parliamentary elections as being neither fair nor free in 2012. Uh, 2013, there's some issues. She goes back to the Ukraine and supports the Crimeans. Toria is captured on tape with the ambassador to the Ukraine talking about how they can stand up in opposition to the Russian-backed leader of the Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych. And that tape gets leaked, and it embarrasses her not only in the U.S. diplomatic circles but with her European counterparts because she makes some pretty unsavory co- uh, comments about the Europeans. And so you see their opposition to what they feel is the creep of NATO towards their border, the the efforts to, to foment uh, revolution against their interests interests in that part of the world. And, and so when the election comes around, who gets targeted, the Democrats, and, and whose emails get leaked, Hillary Clinton's campaign. And I, I'm not sure that they ever thought that they could help Donald Trump win the election, but it was clear who they favored in the ultimate general election. Have you read the Mueller report? Uh, as much of it as I can. I've yeah. not read the whole thing yeah. uh, f- uh, I, cover to cover.
0: It shows you what a dork I am. I was off down the Cape uh, mm. over the summer and spent my – that was my beach reading. <laughs> I did finally read it, and I'm glad I did. Yeah. I urge everyone to download it. You can get it free right. on your Kindle and uh, uh, because its it's amazing reading. And in the first part of it, uh, the part where uh, Robert Mueller concluded right. that he couldn't, he did not have conclusive evidence of uh, a conspiracy involving right. members of the Trump campaign and, and the Russians. Nonetheless, there's, I guess, we could call it circumstantial, but there's tr- there's a tremendous amount of contact mm-hmm. and interaction between representatives of this foreign power and these political operatives and allies of, of then-candidate Donald Trump. Based on your observations during your four years, I mean, what do you make of that? I mean, we let's not be naive. We all know that there are, uh, there are interactions with foreign powers, even adversaries mm-hmm. that go on that are not channeled through the State Department. But uh, this seems extraordinary.
4: Yeah, I think... I have mixed feelings about it. I know as a reporter, I never minded getting opposition research as long as I could prove whether it was accurate or not. I mean, information yeah. is information. And so you can understand the president's comments in that regard where he defends his actions saying, hey, if somebody comes to me with information, you know, do I have a duty to report it or not? That's all debatable, you know, because I think it gets into degrees of a seriousness of what's of how you get this information or how it was obtained. I think the real issue here is is there was evidence that there was hacking going on, that there was targeting of the Democratic National Committee and its infrastructure. So this wasn't somebody necessarily going into the Watergate and putting tape across a lock and rifling through a filing cabinet, but they were doing it in the 21st century way. They were using the internet to gain access to where they shouldn't be, and they were taking information out. And then you have a president or a presidential candidate stand on stage and encourage its release, and then it is released right at a precipitous moment for this presidential candidate And then subsequent to his election, which even his own people concede was a surprise, there's then documented communication between members of his incoming team and the Russian ambassador, A, about setting up a back channel for communication, B, telling them don't react to what the current administration is doing because we'll we'll pursue a different policy when we're in office, and then the cover-up when you have FBI agents come in and actually start asking you questions about it. So, you know, that, is, that goes a little bit beyond the sort of passing off of a compilation of clips of, you know, what Bill Weld said before he ran for governor in 1991. I mean, I'm fascinated by the extent to which
0: businessmen mm-hmm. and women, mm-hmm. these Russian oligarchs, right. were acting as agents of Putin. Mm. You know, the meeting in the Seychelles with Eric Prince, mm-hmm. another businessman operator of this uh, 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 mercenary large large mercenary organization and an ally of of the trump organization did was this something you experienced during your time with Secretary Kerry that there were these kind of
4: back channels going on? Well, I think the thing that's interesting and 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 the real gift of this job. There was a couple. One was this awareness I gained of climate change from our travels to the North Pole and South Pole and all around the middle of the earth, but also was an appreciation for all the different parts of the world. You know, you hear the Middle East or you hear the Gulf. I now know what those see, you know, feel like and, and the customs and, and, and all that. And another thing that was a real gift was the exposure to these authoritarian regimes and the way they operate, because they're huge. I mean, China is one quarter of the world's population. Russia pales in a, in a lot of indexes in comparison to the United States, whether it's economic or whatever. But to understand the control that authoritarian leader like a Vladimir Putin holds over that country, he makes or breaks people economically. Uh, if you're a friend of his, you, you can get the the license to run Gazprom or someplace, yeah. you, these, these formally uh, nationalized entities that then go private. So he has the ability to make and break people there, and they know that staying on his good side is to their benefit. So whether it's acting formally as emissaries of his or wanting to go back to him with something that would be of value to him, you understand how that could all come about when you see cameras everywhere, when you, when you see the, the, the consequences for crossing him. I thought about this. We drive around Red Square. We pass this bridge right within the view of St. Basil's Cathedral, that very sort of famous flame dome cathedral, and you'd see this bridge where Boris Nemtsov, his opponent— couple days before a rally to criticize the incursion in Ukraine and other activities by by Vladimir Putin, is assassinated. He's shot four times in the back. A a chief critic just silenced. And you you understand the consequences for crossing a leader like that. And you've, during your time with Secretary
0: Kerry, visited countries where the the permanent bureaucracy, you know, really does call the shots Mm -hmm. here. Uh, Put in when when people hear all these claims about a U.S. deep state mm-hmm. that you know tried to overthrow Trump, if you will, uh, and so forth and so on, uh, put that into perspective. Is that is that a legit claim in any way, shape, or form? Uh,
4: I have to say, I walked away from this speir- experience with a lot of respect for our governmental system. Uh, so first of all, this experience was an eye opener for me in terms of appreciating just what the State Department itself is. Uh, This is a 70,000-person organization. Uh, Most of its workforce is in 285 missions all around the world. Uh, It's more forward-deployed than our military. These are people around the world who are on the leading edge of our government and helping inform the decision-making for, say, the president and members of Congress or the Defense Department or the intelligence community. So I gained a lot of appreciation for that aspect of our government in that way. I also gained some, gained some appreciation for the civil service. This is, I think it's like a two-million-person workforce, uh, and there's plenty of the people in there that we have all readily caricatured, you know, you know they take i saw somebody take take leave when their cat died and things like that that just make you shake your head or heaven forbid you ever ask for something at 501 because yeah. you know it. they've huh. checked out at 430 but I also saw many, many, many very good people. Uh, I, I walked one day, we were up on the secretary's seventh floor in his office area in the, in the State Department, and I saw one of these guys getting a, a room set up for meeting, and he was standing at the microwave with these two um, containers, and I said, Kenny, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm just adding a little bit of heat to the cream so it doesn't curdle when they pour it into their coffee. And I just thought that was something like that, 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 that this low-level person was doing to make sure that a foreign dignitary coming to the United States didn't have a bad experience just pouring their coffee. And, and so there's a lot of real, good, genuine souls like that. But there are people there that are institutionalists, that care about the perpetuation of what they see as norms and standards. And so there is a deep state in that regard, for sure. Yeah. Does the current Secretary of State Mike Pompeo
0: appear competent?
4: Well he's certainly smart. I mean you don't get to be first in your class at West Point uh and and go on uh to advanced degrees without being so. My question, especially after this experience and observing a more classic diplomat like a John Kerry, is 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 about his temp the temperament that he brings to this job. Uh, John Kerry, like him, was a veteran. But John Kerry came into this job with the perspective that war was a last resort, that it was a failure of diplomacy. He said this numerous times to us. Mike Pompeo seems very much more hardcore about rattling the saber rather than sort of doing the diplomatic work. And so you wonder, is this the right job for him? Well, that leads me to the biggest question of all, which I've saved for
0: last. (laughs) Uh, Do you believe in the coming months... Coming
4: years that we're going to war it's interesting. I was looking the other day. there was an op ed in the Boston Globe and it was written by a Green beret who'd been shot in Afghanistan, and he questioned the stomach and appetite and wisdom in a country with an all volunteer military for a third war uh, you know do we we still have a military presence in Iraq? We still have a military presence in Afghanistan. And if you talk to the generals or read what they write, something with Iran would be a pretty bloody and ugly battle. And so President Trump had come into office promising to keep us out of military engagements. Right. This could be one of the ugliest ones that we could possibly get into. So I sure hope not. The danger, as I said earlier, with with a maximalist policy is – you better make sure you get what you want or you better be ready to lose some face. And the president doesn't like to lose face, but getting what you want is, is a real challenge. And the other thing the American people should understand is, is the policy that's being pursued right now is of special benefit – not necessarily to us, but to others in the region, whether it's Israel, which, which feels an existential threat from the Iranians, to the Saudis and the Qataris and the Emiratis who all have this uh, religious difference. They're all Sunnis versus Shiite Iran. Uh, you want to make sure that we're not getting dragged into doing their bidding, when they're neighbors and they have hefty militaries, you know, do we really – is this our fight or theirs? And, and so I still think that there, there needs to be a lot of questions answered before you make that decision to do that because uh, it's not going to be an easy thing. It, you know, when a president talks about obliteration or it's over before uh, it starts, I don't know many people uh, that are really in that world that think that's the case. If people want to find out more about you and your book, you've got a website, right? Sure, I do. Yeah, it's my name, glennjohnson.com. That's 1-N-G-L-E-N-J-O-H-N-S-O-N.com. And but the book is on Amazon. It's available in local bookstores. And I'm told libraries are ordering it. So that's, Libraries? Yeah, what it's... are those? <laughs> the book is entitled Window Seat on the
0: World, My Travels with the Secretary of State, the author, Glenn Johnson. Glenn, thank you for joining us on Studio BZ. John, it's good to see you again. The goal
4: is a city with charm. Character and the first
0: first. first.
2: Boston has a new superintendent of schools. Dr. Brenda Caselius, was commissioner of education for the state of Minnesota and began her job here in Boston just days ago. So we wanted to get a chance to know her. So welcome Thank you. to Dr. Caselius. Thank Thanks you so, so much, much for coming in to talk with us. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so what will your message be as you can go
3: to say hello? So my message really is on parent and community engagement at first mm-hmm. and authentic engagement, which is really listening mm-hmm. and trying to understand where are the great opportunities, What is working well, like you do stories on what's working well in our schools, and also then finding where are some of the gaps. We have a large focus on high schools. Obviously, we have a lot of work to be to be done there mm-hmm. um, to be ensure that we have rigor and high-quality schools in every neighborhood, to ensure that we're addressing the out-of-school factors, and that's why I chose, really, Boston, was mm-hmm. the mayoral control and the appointed school committee to be able to go out and leverage the entire cabinet of the mayor to really look at the holistic uh, impacts of what's happening with children and their learning. Right. And so that'll be uh, key in assessing that. And then hopefully we'll be able to look at student achievement and the curriculum that we're being able to offer in our schools, raising the level of rigor in all of our schools, and then the support side as well.
2: Because there are so many factors, as, as we've covered, uh, as journalists here and as you will know, outside of the classroom that do affect right. children yeah. as they head into their school day. Uh, you had said, I, I noticed in the Boston Globe, that you would like like to be here for 13 years that this class <laughs> of kindergartners starting in the fall you would love to give them their high school diploma. First of all how, how do you pull something like that off? Well, Where do you start?
3: Well you have to be a good diplomat. And you do Show. have to be a good listener. Mm-hmm. And you have to be really engaging everybody in the outcomes for the children. Yeah. And if you're not involving everybody authentically and if you're not really listening, then
2: it's really hard to stay that long. Do you plan to not always live in the same place in right. Boston? exactly. And you're going to move around year, I am. And year I am. after year? That's an interesting plan.
3: It is, because I just think that if you are actually living with everyone and living with the families. Mm-hmm. I started out in Roxbury. Mm-hmm. I don't know where I'll go next, but... Um, I want to go there and then live in that community, go to church with people, synagogue, mosque, and then uh, go to the parks and walk my dog.
2: Because it's important to understand each different neighborhood it absolutely and is. how it contributes and to it, the and city.
3: It, it's, it's very different in the different parts of the city, and the resources are different in different parts of the city. Right. So knowing that firsthand as superintendent will help me do a better job. Yeah.
2: I know universal pre-K is a big issue. It has been for Mayor Walsh. It is a big focus for yes. you you know what do you say to families and parents about how important universal pre-k is uh, you know, so many times we know that middle-class families of all different backgrounds, they have that little baby in the city, mm-hmm. and as soon as the child turns three, they move out to the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so talk about how important universal pre-K is, and what's your appeal to those families that they should stay in the, sta- in the city of Boston?
3: Well, one of the goals I have is that we will be parents' top choice uh, for their children, and that starts early at pre-K. And so the mayor's commitment to universal pre-K is just fabulous. I love him for that. Mm-hmm. It's just going to help families and it helps their pocketbook too. Mm-hmm. So I think that having the opportunity for children to get a great start is the great, the best way to be able to ensure that they're successful in school uh, long term. It's also really good for the school. Whenever you put in pre- pre-K programs into elementary school programs, you see a whole school shift and change because those relationships are developed a lot earlier.
2: Right, so families are going to stay longer. Absolutely. Because the new thinking in education, isn't it, is to sort of phase out the middle school that you, that you want elementary schools to go longer and then high schools to have? Well, I think that's older. easier on
3: families yeah. to be able to have that stability in the relationship with the family, and mm-hmm. that's good because children just don't arrive as a child. They really arrive in systems and in, in, in children in, in whole family systems, yeah. and they also are in community systems and then in the entire state system. So I think that when you are able to really work at a younger age with, with children, um, it's just better for everybody with mm-hmm. the family, with the relationships, and when you get to middle. School, school, you have to still program differently for middle schoolers, sure. no matter what configuration you're in, because they are still teenagers. Right. It's a
2: tough age. <laughs> it is. But you don't want to sequester them off into a different no. building.
3: No. Well, they could be housed in a mm. team mm-hmm. and be shared with a certain number. So you take a number of students, and then they get the same core teachers, and then they work together with the students. So it's more personalized
2: for right. them. You know, the other factor in the whole puzzle of education, of course, is the charter school conversation, yeah. which continues. and. Politically, uh, on the Democratic side, the support for charter schools seems to be waning. And that's significant in Mm -hmm. in a state like Massachusetts. Where do you stand on charter schools and what we can learn from them? How do you see them fitting into the whole picture?
3: So, you know, I don't care too much about the structure of schools. Mm -hmm. And I haven't really fussed about that too much. Um, It's a public school. And the children often go from the charter to the regular traditional schools, back to charters. And so it's important that any time a child's in a school, and it's a public school, that it's a high-quality school.
2: Mm, Yeah. Um, Are you still going to root for the Minnesota Twins? There's always a question the kids will ask you around Red Sox games. I guess that's I have, Can we win you over to the I have Red sox-, sox? I have team members who have. I'm much
3: more of a Bruins fan, but I'm gro- I'm a growing Red, Rock- Red Sox fan.
2: That's great. And do you drink iced coffee in the winter? That's something you'll see parents oh, doing at the, at the
3: bus stop. That's good to know. I was surprised at the number of Dunkin' Donuts.
2: <laughs> you will no longer be surprised yes. as you move around to various neighborhoods that's in the right, city. That's right. Well, Dr. Brenda Castellius, thanks so much for are coming by to introduce Thank yourself you. Thank and so we nice wish you to meet you the best of luck as you begin the new school year the answer is more technology more and better
4: more and better more and better
2: Boston will soon get its first recreational marijuana store because state regulators gave a provisional license recently to Pure Oasis in Dorchester. And
1: joining us tonight is the co-owner of Pure Oasis, Kobe Evans. Kobe, thanks so much for coming in. We appreciate Thank
5: it. You. Thank you. for having me.
1: So the store is going to open up uh, on Blue Hill Avenue in Dorchester. Yes. How soon do you think you can get it open, and what's to, what's the store going to offer?
5: Um, so, again, we're, we're, we're driving the team to get it done as soon as possible, so we have to do a build-out of retail retail space. We have to meet with the city and talk about um, some safety concerns and public safety and things of that nature. So we're looking at hopefully the end of October. Mm. Um, so yeah. Full range of products there. Full range of products. Um, so so I, I met with one of our wholesalers today and we talked about some product mixes. And, and so part of it is depending upon what's available at the time mm-hmm. so what the um our suppliers have changes from week to week from day to day and so forecasting that far out you know we have to talk to them as we get closer to figure out what they have available and
2: this was the first license given under the economic empowerment program correct. Correct. which was designed to help communities that were disproportionately harmed by the criminalization of marijuana correct uh let's talk about the numbers a little bit because sure. in terms of how many provisional licenses have been given and have been approved Uh, but the small number that's gone toward the equity program. Talk about how that's worked out.
5: So, um, so... Again, we have, uh, being in the economic empowerment program, we have some different hurdles to um, get over such as technical assistance is not necessarily having the expertise to be able to navigate through the application process, which at times can be daunting versus someone who has experience in a different state or with a medical dispensary, maybe they can hire a consultant that will help them with the legal aspect, Mm -hmm. with the regulatory aspect or even with the financing. And so it just changes the dynamic. so our walls to get over a little higher, um, but you just have to work harder to kind of get through that um, to get over those obstacles. But in terms of numbers, uh, again, there are a lot of companies that operate around the country that are poised for this opportunity. And so they're ready and they're able to um, navigate some of these um, gauntlets a lot easier than someone who may be a small business who doesn't have the experience.
1: You said in the Boston Globe that You actually think the outlook is bleak for other people of color looking to get a license in Massachusetts. Again, you're the first person of yep. color to be a co-owner of one of these licenses. Yeah. Why is the outlook
5: bleak? Well, again, um, the application process is generally straightforward from the state side. Um, it is laid out. Your expectations are clear. What you need to do in terms of applying is, is very direct. But there's a nuance in the application for the for Massachusetts where you need to get this this host agreement. Your final state application is dependent on a host agreement, and the host agreement process varies from from town to town. And with over 200 towns in Massachusetts, you never know what you're going to expect. Um some towns have a very um, transparent process. Some towns have no process. And, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. s- imagine if you had to get in touch with um, the mayor of Medford like we had to do. You know, that's not the easiest thing to do in the world, to just email the mayor and say, hey, I want a host agreement. Um, and for us, that's been very daunting. But, you know, that's the reality right. of it.
2: One of the reasons the law was passed, I think a lot of people think, is because each town was given the power. Each municipality could opt out if they yes, wanted to. Correct. They had their own Vote. correct so that that is just going to be part of the process naturally that yeah. each individual municipality is going to be tough to navigate sure, sure. so what do you suggest should change about the process to create more equity
5: well the hard part is that you know um, Massachusetts is the only state in the country that has legalized recreational marijuana that has a host agreement process mm-hmm. most other states realize it's just a more streamlined process just to have it at one level within the within the state government and so um, at this point, because it is hard coded into the law, I don't know if we can navigate around the host agreement process. Maybe the law could be amended to say that, hey, if you're an economic empowerment applicant, you don't need a host agreement. Mm-hmm. That's the easiest way to um fix the problem and to make it easier so that we can achieve the numbers that voters voted for. There are just layers of bureaucracy. Layers of
1: bureaucracy. (laughs) (laughs) On the other end of the spectrum are people who, whether they live in Boston or don't, they don't want a marijuana store on their block. What do you say to people who are worried about right on Blue Hill Avenue there, maybe it attracts more crime, they might argue, what would you say to them?
5: Well, you know, the interesting part is that we have deep roots in the community and we want to be responsible neighbors, so what we did before we even thought about opening up in the neighborhood is that we went to Denver, we went to Las Vegas and we saw actual operating dispensaries, we went inside, we toured the neighborhood to see if there was an impact, whether good or bad. In most places, if you travel the country to ask or see for yourself it's invisible it, you see people going in and out but again um you don't see the type of issues with maybe a liquor store where people relate to um it's usually it's very professional because these are working class people who have better things to do than stand around and get harassed by police or you know yeah. doing something that's illegal
2: right. the equity program was created uh so that there were the benefits of legalization in yeah. communities where People had suffered from criminalization Absolutely. and you've had your own uh, background, uh, your own negative experience with the war on marijuana. What was that?
5: Well, I think that, you know, and I've said this before, is that I don't have any, you know, anecdotal stories mm-hmm. about being, you know, arrested or, you know, um, chased by the, the police or anything like that. But uh, as an African-American male growing up in the inner city my day-to-day trip to, you know, work or to school, um, there are a lot more interactions with police than my counterparts, and that has a lasting effect. And a lot of times it can be traumatizing, you know, to be stopped and frisked and your ID checked and checked for warrants and things like that. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be arrested to have a a, a Mm -hmm. detrimental experience that, you know, shapes your life um, just based on being what in terms of your, your cultural ethnic, ethnicity.
1: You're very close to opening this shop in Boston. You've also applied in Medford and in Mattapan as well, Correct. so also Boston. But yeah. the Medford process, how has that gone? Where do you stand on that?
5: Medford is, you know, every every town is different, and Medford is a gauntlet, you know. Um, it's a daunting task to say, okay, reach out to this municipality, get in touch with the mayor, and work out a host agreement. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've ne- I don't have... You know, those type of political connections in Medford to facilitate that. So it's it's a lot of throwing darts and a lot of, you know, um, hoping things work out. But the best we can do is email the mayor and talk about, you know, maybe a meeting. But so far, it's it's definitely been a challenge. And, you know, we, we're keeping our fingers crossed.
2: So your background is real estate. Yeah. entering a whole new industry. Yeah, yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah,
5: yeah, 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 yeah. Kobe
2: Evans from Pure Oasis. Thanks so much Thank for you. coming in. We Thank appreciate you. it. I
5: appreciate
4: it. Our newscasters, our editors all work as an efficient, well-coordinated
1: team. A few weeks ago, I ran up to the Star Market here in Austin near the station, and it was mid-July. Walk in, right in the front of the store, gigantic Halloween display, mm-hmm. Halloween candy display,
2: mm-hmm. several...
1: Islesworth, you know, the end aisle section.
2: Like next to the American flags for the fourth. So I <laughs> looked around on
1: social media and this is everywhere. Most of the supermarkets already have their Halloween displays up. And it occurred to first of all, I was just angry because it's mid July, it's beach weather, it's barbecue time. I don't I love Halloween. It might be my favorite holiday, but I don't want to see Halloween in July. I want it to be summer. And it occurred to me that America, I think this is, people are well aware of this, has an anxiety disorder. More and more people in America report having anxiety disorders and being on anxiety medication. I think this is part, I mean, there are a lot of other factors at play, but I would think part of the reason is that we're not present-minded anymore.
2: It's always the next thing. It's always,
1: what's the next thing that everyone's thinking now? it's, It's almost August, people are thinking, you know, when do I start to get the pumpkin spice latte? When do I put on the flannel shirt and go apple picking? When can I Instagram that? When can I Snapchat this? When can, You know, it's no one's thinking, let me just go to the beach. It's 90 degrees today. Let me not think about Halloween. Let me think about
0: today. Well, now hold on a minute there, baby Ruth. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe it's, uh, yes, it, it does seem obscenely early. Nonetheless, I mean, I know plenty of people who like to do their Christmas shopping in the summer <gasps> to beat the rush mm, sure. and take advantage I'm of good to deals. Those and maybe, you know, are you the guy who's in the star? on the day of halloween? Yes.
2: Well, here's the thing. My analysis, is, I agree. Do, I mean, remember when you were a child and you would be on your summer vacation and inevitably or somewhere with Cape Cod, whatever, oh, with and your back family to and you would see the back to school yeah, the backpacks worst. out or signs it was depressing. Up, and the and the wave of talk about anxiety <laughs> and dread that would come over you seeing those pencils and notebooks, that was bad enough. Mm. But I think the fact that we're seeing Halloween candy in July, it's In July. this is the sign of how much retail is in trouble. Mm, so John, I think our store owners are really suffering. Yeah. I think that people desperately want you to get to buy anything physically yeah. you can possibly buy and not order it online. And so part of me wants to help. Yeah, but,
1: but but the thing is I'm only going to buy a certain amount of Halloween
2: exactly. candy anyway. So whether July, I buy it now
1: did. or then... Yeah. It's the same for their profit. And Jonathan, our intrepid producer, was just looking this up. He said, this trend of the Halloween candy in particular. Obviously, we've all been seeing Christmas displays in September.
2: Right. Uh, That's been all going on
1: for some time. But in in 2015, this was part of the candy manufacturers' push to put out their new Halloween candies Mm -hmm. for the year. So now every year, mid-July, they put out the displays of here's the new Halloween candy of the year. But... My mm-hmm. reaction to that is it's always the same thing. Anyway. I also it's think so. peanut butter cups. And I'm not alone
2: in this. I've really cut sugar out of my diet, mm. which I think a lot of Americans are doing now. Right. And so I think the candy yeah. manufacturers understand that you've got to get it out of yeah, the Yeah, Paul is asking for Paul
1: is asking for Reese's.
0: Oat milk, peanut butter, <laughs> cup. But. Well, look, we are in high s'mores season, are we not? Well, true. Yes, right. So to maybe Hershey's. they figure, well, people are, yeah. you know. And also, if the the kids start whining about all the back-to-school ads, one way to shut them up is to <laughs> shove a couple of those mini Kit Kats but, in the Oh, mall. yeah, that always works. But I
2: do have to say, it does make you feel down when something is <laughs> yeah. so out of season like that. And wait, It makes you start mature. thinking it's about the fun. fall. Then as it's long not fun. As
0: as they don't start the Christmas music. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
2: until the day after Thanksgiving well I,
0: uh, l- lately it's been before
1: then yeah. oh yeah absolutely yeah. I way, hate way before, that before that. I that too and this is <laughs> along the lines of someone the other day to me said can you believe summer's almost over oh I know and I said no it's not no it's not we have all of August most of September most, uh, last year, the last two years, October has been summer. So we've got two, two and a half months left of summer and people are already going, can you believe it? So, I mean, what are we, we doing to ourselves? We're killing ourselves. I had a high school friend who,
0: whose father was kind of an Eeyore character, always mm. kind of dour. <laughs> yeah. And I remember him sitting there saying, yeah, once you get past July 4th, it's all uh, over. It's all there's always there. that July person. 4th is the
1: beginning of and summer. And for me, oh, yeah.
0: yeah, my kids are grown and gone. Uh, this, the best part of the summer is after Labor Day.
1: Well, right. September I mean, and October are
2: beautiful. Mm, just yeah. beautiful months. Well, yeah, the other
1: theory is that the, the supermarkets do this on purpose, knowing it's going to stoke yeah. social media outrage, right. and then it Gets just raises awareness in. that, it's hey, it's true. available already. It's true. Yeah. yeah. All yeah. Right. So we played right into their trap. Yes, we right did. Right into yeah. their hands. <laughs> we <did>. <laughs> <laughs> So this was our summer dose of Studio B Z for you. And again, we're still in summer. Don't forget it. Yes. This is your summer dose Mid-summer. of Studio B Z. We took a little bit of a hiatus because perfect for listening
0: to on the beach.
2: Perfect at for a the barbecue
0: beach. at a ball
1: yes. game. Absolutely. Long
2: drive. You know, mountains. why are you
0: smiling? The socks are down by six runs. Because this is a great <laughs> Studio B Z pod I'm listening to. And we will be back. Yes. That is we a will. guarantee. We took a
1: little break. For the summer, we take a little break toward the end of the summer here, and then we're gonna we'll be back. We will be back in the fall with weekly episodes, which I know you're all craving. Mm -hmm. People have been chaotic coming at me on Twitter, coming up to me on the street. Where's Studio BZ? What happened to? I thought there was gonna be a riot. It's great. So (laughs) I want you all to know it's okay. We will be back soon, and uh, this was just you know a fun little summer summer. We have
2: so many interesting guests authors celebrities interesting topics so we've got a lot more to explore and Liam's
0: foot fetish is yep. I mean, for it's
2: just um <laughs> oh, man. what's the word people are getting the I mean, wrong impression of <laughs> fascinating <laughs> observations and John was
1: pointing out we have a full catalog too so if you've only listened to a few episodes go back we've been doing this for more than a year now yep. a weekly yep. episode so there's a
2: lot to go back and listen to as well still trying to get Conan Still from trying to York get Klein. Klein. Oh, yes. um, and some other celebrity guests. So we'll see how we do on that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, check back and, st- well, check back constantly, now but that we'll really fa- be back in September. And now
0: that you've found us,
2: yeah. tell a friend. It's
0: true. Share. Um, we're available everywhere mm-hmm. you get your podcasts. And you can check us out on Twitter. Has the Studio BZ pod uh, Twitter feed been active uh, during this hiatus, Jonathan? uh I uh, no okay Fine. <laughs> but That's it still not, exists okay. <laughs> at studio BZ Pod, or right. you can follow my uh, mm. bizarre heat stroked musings <laughs> at at Keller at Large.
2: I'm at Paula Evan WBZ
0: at Liam
2: WBZ mm-hmm. and we will probably be back at the end of August or sometime thereafter
0: And whenever it happens rest assured we'll, we'll be seeing you. you. I had forgotten
2: about that. <laughs>
1: well done. How Jen.
2: could you ever forget I, that that?
1: I don't know. That's true. It. Oh, how could It says, you? Miss forget everything. <laughs>
2: Are you interested, to...